Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's a blessing to be here this morning. Um, would you please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be continuing our reading, beginning with verse 18. First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward or unjust. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd, the bishop of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. The story of Cinderella is a classic Most of us have either read the book or watched a movie on that story, and every version that I have ever seen has one thing in common. Cinderella's kindness and goodness is displayed in the midst of her suffering unjustly. Even in our twisted world where we don't Um, really admire those who maybe don't stand up for themselves. Um, Even in our twisted world, there is a sense in which patiently enduring injustice is an admirable thing in the sight of most people. Now, what I don't like about the story of Cinderella is that it is a godless story. As much as her virtue is admirable, and to some perhaps even inspiring, it falls short of producing any lasting impact in the lives of people. And the reason for that is because her virtue does not point to anything or anyone other than herself. And the truth that we read in the scriptures that we read about this morning that patiently enduring injustice, which is the subject of our text today, patiently enduring injustice really, at the end of the day, means nothing if it does not bring glory to God and point others to Christ. It just stops. It ends. It's like a fairy tale. Today's sermon, the text of this morning's message, 
And the message of this sermon is not about becoming more virtuous, like Cinderella, or about learning to take the short end of the stick, as it were. But today's sermon, rather, is all about submitting to God-ordained authority in the face of injustice as a means of pointing others to Christ and ultimately bringing glory to God. That's the purpose of this morning's message. And at the end of our good works, if the end of your virtue is anything short of that, it is vain, and your unjust suffering has no meaning, has no purpose. It is in vain. These believers that Peter was writing to here in his epistle, so these believers in Asia Minor, they were suffering believers. Peter makes reference to this several times throughout this letter. As we, we, we go through this, we can see that this theme of suffering continues to come up. And Peter acknowledges that fact. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. He acknowledges that they are in a state of suffering. And in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. These exiled believers in Asia Minor were suffering believers, and Peter knew this fact and acknowledges this fact in his letter, and he is, in fact, writing this letter to address them in their suffering and to encourage them in that We began a new section here in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Peter transitions into sort of a new um, section of his letter um, that I introduced, I believe, uh, two sermons ago. And he is now addressing um, these believers and instructing them in how they relate to the outside world. So first of all, he had previously addressed them in how they relate to one another, that they should love one another um, with a pure heart, fervently, that they are being built up into a spiritual house um, that is acceptable to the Lord. But he then transitions into how these believers, in the midst of their suffering, relate to those outside, those unbelievers within the world, the Gentiles, as it were. And how their lives are to be a living testimony, an example of the transforming power of the gospel. That the world would look at them and that they would see that and that some would be drawn to Christ by their example. It's all about pointing to Christ. He says that, he really highlights that in verse 12. He says, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas ye may, sorry, Honest among the Gentiles, that they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. He acknowledges the fact that the world is watching. The world sees what we are doing. They're, though they may not seem by their actions to take much notice to it, they do. They see our lives and they um, are receiving, in, in essence, a message from that. And we are representatives of Christ here on this earth. And our lives are to be a living testimony to be that says that they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So the obvious question that comes to us is how? 
How does that actually happen? What does that actually look like in, in sort of a practical way? And Peter doesn't just state it sort of as a theoretical thing that we're supposed to do, but he really gets into the practical aspects of what this looks like in the lives of believers. And he illustrates this by applying it in how we submit to God-ordained authority and the message that that sends to the world. As he began in verse 13, he said, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man or human institution for the Lord's sake. So Peter applies these principles to these different spheres of authority that we all find ourselves in. Because the reality is that all of us, every single person here within this room, is under some type of authority. Whether you are a citizen, uh, an employee, a student, a husband, a wife, a child, whatever position or place you find yourself in life, you are under some type of authority. And Peter began here... As, we, as I preached about in my last sermon, with, how we, with, with civil authority, how we relate to civil authority. And we talked about the responsibility that we have as citizens to honor the king, to be subject to the governing authorities, to obey them, to submit to them with a heart of submission. We talked about the, the limits of that, um, biblically, the limits of that submission and how to, to rightly understand sort of that, that realm or that sphere of authority that the God has ordained and given to the government. <clears throat> but the next sphere of authority that Peter moves on to in the text that we read about here today is that of servants and masters. As he says in verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. And we'll talk in a moment about, about who that actually is, who it, who it is that he is addressing here. But first, just, just a few observations. As I have begin, began studying this over the last several weeks and just trying to understand this whole um, concept of these spheres of authority and how we relate to them and how that is a testimony to the world, um, I've had some observations as I've wrestled with these things and wrestled with this text of Scripture in trying to understand and apply these principles. First of all, what I've noticed and what I've found is that understanding, understanding these principles of submission to authority brings confidence. And when I say confidence, I don't mean a sense of confidence as in a boldness, but more of a settled assurance of how I submit to authority. It's given me a peace, as it were, a, a, a confidence in knowing that when I'm making decisions, in trying to reconcile in my mind how I relate to authority and submitting to them and to obeying them, it's brought clarity as I've understood these principles that we read about in Scripture and, and gained sort of a biblical conviction of how to deal with all of this. And the reality is that in this time that we live in right now, and I acknowledge this in the last sermon, it's a difficult thing. I think a lot of us are struggling with how to understand this and apply this properly in our lives. Um, what are, again, what are the limits and what, are, what is our responsibility as, as citizens um, and as those who find ourselves under authority? But the second observation, the second thing I've noticed is that obeying and submitting to God-ordained authority brings joy. It brings joy. As I understand and apply these principles, 
in submitting with a heart of submission to God-ordained authority, it has brought joy into my life, even though it's frustrating. I've probably been more frustrated lately with um, authorities than I have ever before in my life. But even in the midst of that, as I submit myself to the authority, the God-ordained authority, I've seen that it brings joy in my life, and it will bring joy in your life as you submit to God-ordained authority in a right and appropriate way. Even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, it, it brings joy when you appropriately submit for the Lord's sake, as it says here. But there is a third thing that comes from submitting to the God-ordained authorities, following these principles of submission, and that's one that we read about in our text today, a third reality, and it is this, that obeying and submitting to God-ordained authority sometimes, oftentimes, brings suffering. Brings suffering. Peter is a realist. He knows that submitting is not always easy, and submitting to authority doesn't always go very well. He doesn't just sort of throw it out there and say, well, just do it, and that's the command, and you know, everything's going to be okay if you just follow what I say. He acknowledges the fact that it does not, oftentimes it does not go well, especially when your master is not a good master. Many of these believers found themselves suffering under oppressive masters. Right from the top, from Nero, who was the emperor at this time, who was a very oppressive leader uh, within his empire, and throughout his government, there was much oppression that came to the people, and that flowed out throughout the different spheres of authority. It even infiltrated the homes in how husbands would treat their wives, in how um, those within authority would sort of take... um, abusive power over those who were subject under them. This was pervasive within that society, from the emperor down to the master of the slaves that he had under his charge. And many of these believers knew what it meant to suffer under unjust authority. Probably more than any of us, they knew this well. But even in the midst of that, Peter calls these believers to live godly lives and to patiently endure suffering. That's Peter's calling. That's the biblical command that we see within this text of Scripture. Not for the sake of displaying our own virtue, like Cinderella, that we're just such good people. But for the glory of God and for the sake of being a faithful testimony that some some would believe as it says, and glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the purpose, that's the motive behind Peter's directive here. So Peter begins with the command in verse 18 where we opened up. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So who's Peter addressing here? He addresses them as, as servants. The King James translates this word as servants. The, probably the most literal translation would be um, household servant, which um, probably, and, and many translations translate this actually as the word slave. That's probably the most accurate translation. Peter is referring here or addressing slaves and how they relate to their masters. The definition of a slave is a person 
who is the legal property of another and is forced to obey them. And this concept of slavery is something that I think is, for, for most of us, if not all of us, is something that is, is a foreign concept to us. Because none of us here in this room, in a, in a legal sense, are slaves. We live in a unique period in history, and it really is a unique period in history, where, by and large, slavery as a legal institution has been abolished. It has been outlawed. Though there is slavery that still exists in this world, by and large, from a legal standpoint, slavery has been abolished here in this earth and, and definitely in this land that we live in. But that was not the case in first century Rome. In fact, it was the norm. It's, it's estimated that there was upwards of 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire during this time. 60 million slaves. That's a significant good portion of the population. And that included Christians who found themselves in that position. Perhaps many Christians who had heard the gospel, who had accepted Christ, found themselves under the oppressive institution of slavery. So it is very natural that Peter would address this group of people in his letter here when he is dealing with the subject of submitting to authority. And I want to take a, just a moment here to go on a little bunny trail. We'll, we'll come back to this in a moment, but I think... It's worth noting that slavery, the subject of slavery, is not something that comes up very often in the scriptures, and especially in the New Testament. It's mentioned in several places, but it's not something that is really addressed head-on, as it were. And one of the questions that we would ask is, is why? Why doesn't Peter actually take it another step and address this issue or this subject of slavery and the evils of slavery here. You know, he, he mentions it. He sort of comes up to this and, and sort of acknowledges the fact that there is slavery. And you would, almost imagine, you would almost think that, well, now is the time to bring it up. If Peter's ever going to say something about the evils of slavery, now would be a good opportunity. He's talking about authority, and he should be, he should be you know, stating that slavery is oppressive authority and that we should be tearing down that institution. But it's interesting the approach that Peter takes. And in many ways, he's silent. He just mentions it, and then he gives the directive and he goes on. And I think that says something. You know, we ask, why, why doesn't he do that? Why, why does he just mention it? Why doesn't he build upon this point anymore? And I can imagine, actually, those who have, throughout history, there's been movements that have been pushing against the institution of slavery, and, and thank God it was abolished. I don't know the date that it was, but you know, a few hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, it was by and large abolished within sort of the Western world. And there are those who fought feverishly for that. But I can imagine those who fought for the rights of slaves and to abolish slavery looking at this scripture and saying, why doesn't Peter bring that up here? You know, why doesn't he just outright say that slavery is wrong, it's evil? And some have actually used Peter's silence here to defend the institution of slavery. When this was a debate, they would say, well, Peter doesn't explicitly condemn it here, so therefore it must be acceptable to God. He just sort of acknowledges it as an institution. And I don't think Peter's silence on this issue was his approval of it, I think Peter knows and, and the scripture makes it clear that every person is created in the image of God and is equal before God. And 
that is, that is a, a truth that we can see from the scriptures. But as terrible as slavery is, was in that day, Peter knows that Christ's mission here on this earth was never about social reform. Yes, the kingdom of God can and does bring great impact on society, especially when it is adhered to, and we see the effects that following the principles of God and the principles of Scripture has had on creating good society here within this world. But at the end of the day, Christ's mission was not to bring about social reform. One day Christ will come to this earth and he will reign over all things and he will make all things right. But social reform, social justice, we talk so much about that today, social justice was never the end goal of Christ. Christ came not to reform, but to transform the hearts of men. He came not to reform, but to transform the hearts of men. And so Peter puts the focus on that. He, his, his, Peter's focus and desire for these believers, many of them, some of them slaves here, is that they would undergo inward transformation and experience true freedom. Not freedom from slavery, as good and right as that is. He focuses on what really matters, that inward transformation, that they would be truly free to live and to honor the Lord in all things. So even as Peter is addressing these slaves who were suffering unjustly, uh, that's his main sort of target audience, slaves, the principles of this text still apply to us here today. And Peter addresses not only slaves, but all of us who find ourselves under the authority of a master. Again, like I mentioned before, whether it is an employee to an employer, your boss or your manager, a student to a teacher, children to parents, all of the principles that Peter lays out here are applicable within those spheres of authority. And as hard as it was, I'm sure, for these Christian slaves to take this directive from Peter, because it would have been hard to, to read this, as hard as it was, it is, will also be hard for us to apply these principles, because submission is difficult. Submission is hard. It's not easy. There's something inside of us that does not want to submit. And as Peter pointed out, it's sometimes and oftentimes will bring unjust suffering in our lives, and Peter is not ignorant of this fact. In fact, he seems to build the whole premise of this command that he gives on the fact that masters are not always good masters. He acknowledges that fact right up front when he says here in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear or respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, to the bent, to the crooked, to the severe, the harsh, the unjust. Those are the ones that you must submit to. He, Peter's talking about these unjust masters, and that was, like I said, definitely the case in this day. For many of these who were slave owners in that day, they were harsh men. They were unjust men. There was that, that um, sort of system of belief that, that fed that un injustice towards those who were under your authority. And we've all seen examples of that. Even as we look, some of us have seen movies, we've seen the injustice that has taken place of those who were under the slave trade, uh, for example, in America 200 years ago. It was a very unjust system. And we see how much mistreatment there was of slaves. And it's hard to watch that. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that, Peter says to these believers, submit, obey, 
be subject to them, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The assumption is that some masters will be evil masters. Peter doesn't have his head stuck in the clouds like, oh, you know, just submit and everything's going to be okay. Peter acknowledges this fact. He knows that fact. Now, that's not to say that all masters are evil. There are some good masters. There are some who are, as it says, good and gentle, and we've all had good authority figures in our lives, and we thank God for that. But those are not the hard ones to submit to. So Peter doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the unjust ones. And Peter really sort of cuts right to the chase, as it were, in dealing with the circumstances that are before these believers that we can all relate to. Because the reality is that all of us, and it seems like it's more often than not, it's hard to find good leaders nowadays. You know, we look at our political leaders and we're like, man, like, could we not come up with anyone better than these people to lead us? We look around us in the different spheres of, of authority that we find ourselves, again, at work or in our schools or whatever. It, is. Like, it seems like there's so much corrupt authority around us. And we can all relate to this. Who here has not had a, a bad boss or manager or supervisor or teacher or instructor? Yes, there are good ones, but so many of them are not good. So many of them do not, are not do not act in an honorable way that we desire to follow them. And we sometimes receive the injustice that they bring to us. We all have to some degree or another, probably not as much as these slaves had experienced from their masters, but we all have to one degree or another. And it really shouldn't surprise us because the reality is that we live in a world with evil and sinful people. So really we should expect that there will be evil and sinful and unjust authorities over us. But the question that comes to all of us here, and this is what we need to ponder, and this is what needs to cut to our hearts, is how will we, how will you respond when you find yourself in this situation? How are you going to respond when you find yourself suffering under unjust authority? And Peter addresses that in the following verses, verses 19 through 23, and gives three reasons or incentives or motivations for our calling to patiently endure suffering from unjust masters. And then he wraps it up in verses 24 and 25 with the gospel-centered power of how to do that. But let's jump right into that. Um, These three reasons or incentives or motivations that Peter gives us. And the first one is, He begins with a God-centered motivation in verse 19. For this is thankworthy or acceptable if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So how, why do we patiently endure? What's our motivation? Number one is because it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. It honors him. It is a gracious thing in his sight when we patiently endure suffering for the Lord's sake. Remember, it's not about our own virtue. We don't want to turn this around and focus it upon us that, you know what, we're so good that, um, you know, we, we just endure this, we just take it, and it sort of elevates us, and, and we receive praise from other like Cinderella did because she was just such a good model of virtue. That's not what it's about. But rather, we patiently endure injustice out of a desire to please and honor our Heavenly Father. There's no virtue in suffering in and of itself. Suffering itself does not 
is not virtuous. And sometimes we get that mixed up. We think, well, suffering is somehow a virtue. Suffering is not a virtue. In fact, Peter, especially Peter, sort of clarifies that here in verse 20 when he says um, about suffering when we do wrong. He says in verse 20, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted or beaten for your faults, ye take it patiently? He answers, it's a, it's a rhetorical question, he answers, he says, there's no honor, there's no reward in being beaten for disobeying. You deserve that. If you're caught sleeping on the job and your boss shames you in front of everyone else, there's no, there's no credit to you for that. There's no, in that, in that moment of suffering, because you deserve that. But, second half of the verse, when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. It honors him. It pleases him. And this is what we are called to. For even hereunto were ye called, it says. And I, I want to clarify something here because we can sort of start to get questions in our mind. Okay, well, how does this actually work then? Um, this does not mean, this does not mean that as Christians we're called to simply be pushovers. That, you know, we just do our job and we're just sort of beaten for doing well and we just got to take it and we just take the abuse. We never defend ourselves. Um, we just sort of welcome this suffering um, as if it's somehow just, you know, that's just a, the, the virtue and it just makes us a good person because we just take as many blows as we can handle. You know, if, if you know, we, we're constantly being abused in our job or if our boss is not paying us for the work that we rightfully did, we, it doesn't, this scripture is not saying that we just sort of take that and that um, we can just stay in that forever. Thankfully, in this country that we live in, we have a certain level of human rights that has been afforded to us as citizens of this country, and it's not wrong to take advantage of those rights, those human rights that are given to us to protect us, and we thank God for those things. If we are being treated unjustly, there is a a right and a good way to go about correcting that, unlike these slaves, actually, who were slaves. They were owned by their masters, and their masters had the right to do whatever they wanted with them. They had no rights at all. So thank God we do have rights, and it is appropriate at times to go about um, defending ourselves through the means which are given to us. But the point here is that, that, that Peter is trying to make is that if and or when we do find ourselves in a circumstance, however small or great it is, when we are being treated unjustly, our calling as Christians is not to respond with revenge, with malice, with bitterness or hatred like those in the world, but rather to follow the example that Christ gave to us. As he says in verse 21, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow. We follow the example of Christ. And that leads us to our second reason, our second motivations. First is that it pleases the Lord, but secondly, that we follow the example of Christ. That is our motivation. We patiently endure because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. We follow Christ's example, and Jesus, the example is this, that Jesus suffered the greatest injustice that man has ever suffered. And it was the greatest, it was the greatest injustice because of all men, Christ least deserved the injustice that he received. 
Though men have suffered perhaps equally that he has on the cross, many men were crucified. In fact, Peter himself was crucified upside down because he said that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way that Christ was. Peter suffered greatly, perhaps as much as Christ did in his death. But the injustice is so much greater because Christ was perfect. Christ was totally perfect, and it makes the injustice that much worse. It says here, that in verse 22, in the next verse, it says, Who did not sin, this is speaking of Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. This is a quote from Isaiah 53, talking about Christ, that he did no sin. So if anyone deserved to be treated fairly, if anybody deserved to not receive that great injustice that Christ received, that great suffering that Christ received, it was him. He was treated cruelly, yet he was perfect. And I've noticed something, and perhaps you've noticed this before as well, that it seems to be the case, consider your own life and consider the example of Christ here, but it seems to be the case that when it comes to cruel masters, those who are oppressive and unjust, the more obedient you are, the more you suffer. The more obedient you are, the more you suffer. This was definitely true with Christ. He was perfect, yet he suffered, in many ways, the greatest suffering. And some of us have likely experienced that before when when you have an oppressive boss, maybe at work, or manager, and it seems like the harder you try, the harder they come down on you. Or... They're doing everything that they can to make you slip up, just like the Pharisees did with Jesus. They try to find fault with him. They do that to you because they're oppressive, they're unjust, and when they're unsuccessful in that, that, they try to make your life as miserable as possible. These are real circumstances that we face, and it's hard. And by God's grace, we must look to the example of Christ who, who went through those same experiences that some or many of us have and will go through And we find strength and we find motivation to respond by looking to the example of Christ. To respond as he did. It says here in 23, who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. So first of all, our motivation, our incentive is to please the Lord. Secondly, it is to follow the example of Christ. We follow his example And thirdly here, as we read, we patiently endure suffering, unjust suffering, and we leave it to the justice of God. That's our third and final motivation here. Christ demonstrated perfectly how to respond to injustice. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. He did not threaten revenge when he was treated unjustly, as it says here. He did not repay evil for evil, but it says that he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And when you're treated unjustly, when I'm treated unjustly, it's so tempting. It's so tempting in that moment to respond in a sinful way, to fight fire with fire, to get back, to take revenge. That's the, there's something in our nature that we have that desire. But remember, we are the people of God. We've been transformed. And Christ has taken that heart that seeks to, to have revenge and is hateful towards those who are unjust towards us. And he conforms us and he transforms us. And our lives are to demonstrate that transformation to an unbelieving the world. That they can see that we are like Christ. We follow his example. We don't take revenge. 
And we do this sometimes in subtle ways. Even at work, you know, when, when we're treated unjustly, we're, we're, we, we, we speak evil behind our boss, perhaps. Maybe we don't snap at him or, or do something vengeful, but, you know, in subtle ways, we fight back. We speak evil of them, or maybe we sow discord or discontentment among our coworkers. We complain, we stir others up because we want to get back at them. We have to examine our hearts, brothers and sisters. It's not just about our obvious outward actions, but we need to look into our hearts What is the heart that we have? What is the heart that you have? Unjust actions, the unjust actions of your master is never justification for responding in a sinful way. Matthew Hemmerd comments on this. He says, the sinful, excuse me, the sinful misconduct of one relation does not justify the sinful behavior of the other. The servant is bound to his duty, though the master is sinful, froward, and perverse. We are called, you are called to submit, to obey, to honor those in authority, whether they are just or not. That's the command that we read in scripture. And their injustice does not justify your sinful response. And that's hard. Acknowledge that. And, And one question comes up then is, if we don't retaliate, what do we do with the injustice? If we don't respond with retaliation towards those who are unjust, what do we do? Do we bottle it up? Do we just kind of suppress it, try to forget about it and just rub it off our shoulders? What's, what's the right response biblically to the injustice that we receive? Christ gives us the example. In verse 23, it says, at the end of verse 23, it says that Christ, he committed himself to him that judges righteously. What do we do with our injustice? We leave it to the justice of God. We don't bottle it up. We don't try to forget about it. We don't just sort of, in our minds, just try to let it go, but really never actually dealing with it. No, the scriptures gives us the directive of what we are to do. We leave it to the justice of God. We leave it to the one that we know will judge it rightly. Because the reality is that as much as we think we're good judges, all of us think we're good judges and we know how to discern correctly, especially in situations when we are treated unjustly, the reality is that our perception is skewed. We're all sinners. We, are all, we all have limits to our ability to discern what is right and good in a circumstance, and we are not able to take that justice position of being the one to administer justice ourselves. We can't judge rightly. And we end up judging unjustly, just like the people who were unjust towards us, if we take it in our own hands. We are called biblically to leave it to the justice of God. It's not about giving up our own justice. Remember, it's not about just bottling it up and trying to forget about it and not dealing with it. No, not at all. God is a God of justice, and we are called to be people of justice. But... When we understand authority, when we understand that God is the right judge, that he, as he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We, we leave it to the justice of God, and that is so freeing to us. That gives us so much comfort and hope to know that we can leave it in the hands of a righteous judge. 
And we can take confidence in that. When your boss is unreasonable and he yells at you um, for, not re- for not meeting his demands that were unreasonable in the first place, or when your manager steals credit from you for a job that you worked on so hard, we leave it. We let it go. Not letting it go in the sense of just bottling it up and not dealing with it, but we leave it to the justice of God, knowing that he will judge it rightly in the end. And it doesn't produce bitterness in our heart. We commit it to him who judges righteously. So three motivations. Motivation to please the Lord, to follow the example of Christ, to leave it to the justice of God, and finally, finally we read here in verse 24, the power to actually do this. Verse 24, speaking of Christ, it says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. In Christ, we find our healing. Simply put, the power to do this, to actually do this, is only found in Christ. It's only found in the gospel. It is only because of what Christ has done in submitting to the Father, in laying down his rights, suffering unjustly, bearing our sins on the cross, rising again, and and giving us new life. It is only in that that you have the power to, as it says here, live unto righteousness. You cannot do this on your own. Cinderella is a fairy tale. You do not have the virtue in and of yourself to accomplish this. It is only found in Jesus Christ and in the power of the gospel. It's not about becoming more virtuous. It's not about just taking the short end of the sticks just because. It's about the transforming power of the gospel. It's about knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and being conformed to his death as it says in Philippians. And it's by God's grace and by God's grace alone that you can patiently endure unjust suffering and that it will serve its purpose its purpose to be a witness to this world to testify to the power of grace in your life that you can respond not the way this world responds but the way Christ has brought you to respond to be a witness to the world of the transforming power of the gospel to point others to Christ and to bring glory to God in the day of visitation And may that be true in each of our hearts as we consider this text. I pray that it would convict us and that it would stir our hearts to consider how we respond to the injustice of those who are in authority over us. And by God's grace, may we do this for his glory. Amen.